Welcome everyone. Um, great to see you this morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the leaders here. Great to be with you. We are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open it up or turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, and we'll get started. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you know that the Pharisees or the Bible teachers of Jesus' day are making their critical decision to reject Jesus. And this tension has more or less been the theme for the last four weeks. And so if you were with us four weeks ago, you'll remember at the start of chapter 12, they tried to trap Jesus in their hyper-conservative interpretation of the Sabbath day. And Jesus replies to them and says, hey, I'm actually Lord of the Sabbath, and it's lawful to do good. And then three weeks ago, they accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. And they said, that's how you have your power over darkness, is by being in league with darkness. To which Jesus responds that his purpose in coming was actually to rob Satan's house or to destroy Satan's work by unleashing the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what he's doing. And then uh, two weeks ago, or sorry, the, the passage we studied last Sunday, uh, Jesus immediately, in continuing to respond to the Pharisees, unpacks this idea that they are rejecting the one true source of forgiveness in all of the universe, and that their actions and words are actually reflective of a deeper heart posture. The only unforgivable sin, Jesus says, in a sense, is to reject the Spirit's call to the very source of all forgiveness for all other sin, and, and to reject the Spirit's work in and through Jesus. And yet, that seems to be exactly what the Pharisees are doing. Their exchange continues as we pick up in verse 28. This is chapter 12, verse 28, says this. It says, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth or in a tomb. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes with it and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. Let's pray. Jesus, as we approach these words spoken thousands of years ago, I pray two things over the text this morning. One, that we would uh, allow them to speak to us 
in the way that you intended them to speak to the original audience. Because the first read through this text it leaves us a little confused. And the second is that we would actually see the statements you've made today in the context of your larger self-sacrificial mission of winning back humanity. And we would see these words as a source of grace, kind of lighting the path back to that source of forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption and eternal life. So would you um, enlighten us, Jesus? Would you open our eyes to what it is you would want us to hear this morning in your name? Amen. All right, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are rejecting Jesus and what he offers. They are slowly developing a plot to kill him, and then we're told some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And at this point, we should be asking, why? Why do they want to see a sign from Jesus? And in part, the answer is cultural. It's worth noting that within Jewish culture, they placed a high premium on miraculous signs from God, and they expected miraculous things to happen from time to time in the life of their community on kind of a semi-regular basis, but especially when the Messiah came or the promised future king that God had told them was coming. They knew that God would move in unique ways in and through him to confirm that he was, in fact, sent from God, anointed by God. So if a potential Messiah showed up in their culture, which in this era, under Roman oppression, there were many of them. Just within a span of years before and after Jesus, there are 12 or 13 well-known cases of people showing up saying, I'm the Messiah, and gaining a following. And, and so one of the things that the Jewish people did is that they would demand miraculous signs from this potential Messiah to prove that God was, in fact, at work in and through him. And this shows up all over the Gospels as you're reading through. For example, on one account, they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. How about you? In, in other words, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, and it sounds really good, but we need proof. On another occasion, the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? What will you do? The people are asking, and, and then they start feeding him suggestions that might fall in line with their personal expectations. Might I suggest for you, Jesus, manna from heaven? I mean, that would be a good one in my book. Why, why don't you do that? And sure enough, throughout the ministry of Jesus, he is doing all of these miraculous things by the power of God's Spirit. And we see the reaction of the crowds to all of the miracles that are taking place. Here are some of the reactions that we see to Jesus' activities. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. 
And again, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? I probably not. Meaning this must be the one. And then a curious Pharisee came to Jesus at night so he wouldn't be seen. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. How? How do we know that? For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So there's a sense in which they were expecting this, and they were inspired by what they saw, and many placed their faith in Jesus. And in fact, even within the factions of people that hated Jesus and saw him as a threat to their power and privilege, there was constant conversation kind of behind closed doors within these factions about the signs and wonders that were happening and because they themselves could not do those things. So there's a sense in which they were saying like, oh man, we hate this guy. But could he really do that if he weren't from God? The signs gave them pause. And in fact, Jesus himself, in a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, he condemned the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Because they had refused to respond, as these other crowds had, in faith. And so there's this basic sense in which this was part of Jewish culture. It was part of their messianic expectations. And Jesus himself affirms that the signs that are happening should inspire faith in the people who witness them. But there's also a sense in which their hunger for signs became unhealthy. They became preoccupied with them. And Jesus says, Ah, oh, man, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. You're caught up in this stuff, constantly asking for proof, constantly testing me. In some cases, just asking for a show. And there's the potential in all of this, Jesus says, that you might be missing the point. In fact, you might be looking for the wrong clues in the wrong times, in the wrong places, for the wrong reasons. God is on the move. And there is unprecedented stuff happening through Jesus. But whether by intent or by mistake, the Pharisees are missing it. Have you ever read a mystery novel before? Or watched like Sherlock Holmes or something like that? If it's well done, there's usually a crime that's committed. And then you start getting exposed to all of these clues. And there's the crime scene and these conversations that start happening and testimonies and little bits of evidence that start trickling in. And the whole time you're combing through this massive amount of evidence looking for that one killer clue. No pun intended. But you're looking for that one thing, right? That one key clue that's going to lead you to the murderer. And if it's well done then most of the time, the key clue is actually right in front of you all along. 
But the author or the director has you chasing all of these other clues and arriving at wrong conclusions the whole time. And then right at the end of the episode or the end of the book or whatever it is, everything falls into place. In the final hour, they highlight, oh my gosh, it was actually that, that first conversation in the, fir- in the opening scene that they had with the butler. Like, like, it was right there, and I missed it the whole time. I was chasing all of these little rabbit trails, and I missed the thing that was right in front of my eyes. Well, there's a sense in which that's what's happening with Jesus. You've got all of this evidence laid out. People are getting healed left and right. He's casting out demons. He's reversing death right in front of their eyes. And in fact, in this chapter, Jesus has already healed a man with a shriveled hand in their synagogue, in front of their eyes, with a word. Hey, be healed. And it was. And then the Pharisees come to him and say, hey, could you like give us a sign? And if I'm Jesus, my first question is, have you been paying attention? There's all of this stuff happening all around them. And they're saying, hmm, what about manna from heaven? Maybe that would make us believe. In fact, just a few chapters later, Matthew 16, which we'll get to in a few weeks, says this. says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. I'm guessing this happened on a regular basis. He replied, when evening comes, you will say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. Or or in my language, you can read the clues in the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. In other words, Jesus is saying, are you really that nearsighted? that you can read the signs in the sky and piece together the clues, but you are blind as a bat when it comes to signs from God. They are right in front of you, and yet somehow you've, you've confused yourselves. You've blinded yourselves to the real clues around you. And by the time the plot finally unfolds, in that final hour, it will be too late. You're staring down at the ground, trying to trace a specific path of miracles to the specific type of Messiah that that you want me to be, instead of just seeing things as they are. In fact, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Why? Well, perhaps 
they were looking for the wrong clues in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, Jesus says, how about this? I'll give you some evidence that you can't possibly miss. Resurrection. I'm going to be publicly executed by the city gates, by soldiers whose lives depend on me being dead. As in, really, totally, publicly dead. I'm going to be mutilated in front of the crowds. And I'll be buried in a place that's well marked and guarded by the enemy. And for two days, that body will sit lifeless. But on the third day, that tomb will be empty and all be alive again. How is that for a sign? You want bread from heaven, I'll do you one better. How about a body back from the dead? You thought healing the blind was a big deal. You are going to be blown away by what you see next. Now, I'm not going to jump through your hoops. I, I'm not going to put on a show. You've got me all wrong. And I'm going to leave you to figure this thing out for yourself. But as surely as I stand here, there will be one piece of evidence that you cannot possibly miss. And notice that his answer does more than just highlight his resurrection. God is constantly empowering Jesus to do signs and miracles all over the place. And those miracles are inspiring faith. And they should. But in this instance... Jesus says, no. Hmm. No sign will be given to you except my resurrection. And in some cases, Jesus doesn't even mention his resurrection. He just says, no. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. No. You, you just saw a sign. Figure this thing out for yourself. The signs are everywhere. More obvious ones are coming. But because your hearts are wicked... There's not really a sign I could perform that would bring all of this back on track. There's no one thing I could do for you that would solve the problem of your heart posture. You're bad trees, Jesus says, naturally producing bad fruit. And for me to cater to your wishes, for me to jump through your hoops, isn't going to help anyone. It might provide temporary inspiration, but because your heart posture is off, in the long run, it won't help you. You'll slowly slip right back to where you are. And it's in this context that Jesus uses 
an unusual parable of sorts about a demon. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house or the person I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, the parable that Jesus is telling actually reveals something true regarding spiritual warfare. And there are other places in the Gospels where Jesus uses this same language just as an independent teaching point to illuminate for his disciples something about the nature of the struggle between darkness and light. He's saying essentially, hey, if, you, if you're filled with darkness and, and you and God do something to, to alleviate that darkness, to, to vacate that darkness, and you don't move forward in filling yourself with God, well then over time, that darkness is just going to slowly seep right back to where it was. In fact, you might end up worse. And Jesus is saying, now that's true, but in this case, he's saying in the same way, if I jump through the hoops of this wicked generation and show you everything that you desire to see right here and right now, you might repent in the moment. It might silence the critics for a day. You might apologize temporarily, but you still won't follow me. You won't reorient your life around me and my call. You you won't be filled with the Spirit. You won't have true and lasting faith. In fact, in the very next passage, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And he basically says, If I sow good seed of the message of the kingdom of God into your hearts, it's going to fail. Not because the seed is bad, but because the soil is bad. The soil of your hearts is is rocky and shallow such that even if my seed catches today, it might inspire a response today, and darkness might vacate for a moment. But because your heart posture isn't right, it will just settle right back in, and you will end up even more calloused toward me and my work than you were before. You may even end up worse if I do what you're asking me to do for you. And notice that we still do the same things today. For example, um, I love having conversations with, I have an atheist background, still have tons of friends and family that identify with that mentality. And I love having conversations with my friends and family who who still identify as being atheists. And they know I'm a pastor, um, but oftentimes, when we have open and honest conversations, the conversation will naturally steer to this. 
The conversations about God and faith and evidence and skepticism and signs and, and proof. And every once in a while, I like to ask them in conversation, hey, what kind of proof do you want? Almost like the first, hey, what kind of sign would you want if you could have anything in the world? Honestly, what could God do that would inspire faith in you? And believe it or not, I have never heard a satisfying answer to that question. Never. Because if your heart posture is off, then it doesn't matter. God could heal your cancer. He could speak to you in a dream. He could be tangibly felt in the gathered community of God's people. He could reveal himself with crystal clarity in the scriptures. He could raise someone that you know from the dead, and still you wouldn't really believe. I mean, you might for, for a bit, for a day, but if your heart posture is off, you're going to slowly settle back into doubt and disbelief. The problem isn't the sign. The problem isn't the evidence. It's, it's not about signs and wonders or lack thereof. It's a heart issue. Let me put it this way. If you can't think of a sign that would lead you to genuine repentance and lasting faith, then don't ask for a sign. The problem isn't the miracles. The problem is your heart posture. The Ninevites, by all accounts, were a horrendously evil people. When they would conquer a new nation or people group, as they did Israel, it was not uncommon for them to come into town and start randomly cutting off noses and ears of the conquered people, permanently disfiguring them as a lasting sign to the community that they might never forget who dominated them and who's in charge. You would be hard-pressed to find a more ruthless people in the ancient world. But when Jonah came from Israel to tell them about the love and grace of the Creator God, to call them to repentance and salvation, and invite them into what God was doing, the entire city repented and cried over their sin. They wept in the presence of God. Now that is a heart posture that's pure and responsive. And all they had was Jonah. He, he wasn't even that good of a prophet. He, he didn't even want to be there. I imagine his sermons were lousy. And yet this wicked city hears it and the entire city stands up in response and says, we want in. We're done with our worn out evil ways of life. We want whatever God has for us. We believe you. And Jesus says, 
the men of Nineveh who responded so purely to a mediocre prophet, that was my insert, (laughs) will stand up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, me again, which was half-hearted at best. And now something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south, a foreigner from a pagan nation, will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. She was hungry for the things of God. And now something greater than Solomon is here. She left her country and traveled all the way to sit at Solomon's feet and listen to the wisdom and truth of God. And here you sit, Jesus says, at my feet, and you do not believe. Can't you see? You don't need another sign. You don't need more proof. What you need is a change of heart. Nineveh responded to a prophet. And the queen of the south came to see a king. But I tell you that the ultimate prophet is here, and in fact, the true king. And here's where things come full circle. Because these examples from the ancient world highlight beautifully people who responded to the small clues of God. They got very little, and and they gave everything in return. And now Jesus stands face to face with people who are are missing the big ones, who have somehow blinded themselves to something far more obvious. And I can't help but see myself in this story. Because for years, I wanted God to jump through my hoops and meet my expectations and, and to play along with my agenda. As someone saved out of atheism, I constantly wondered, God, why don't you just heal on command in hospitals, under controlled conditions? I mean, silence the atheists. If you're real, then perform the sign. Prove it. As a new Christian, I was dumbfounded as to why God wouldn't do that. God, if you really are real, then give me the perfect spouse or change the person I married to make them perfect. God, if you're really real, then give me this promotion, fix this problem, jump through my next hoop, and then maybe I'll believe you. Maybe. But it takes a different heart posture entirely to say, God, show me who you are on your terms and not mine. Show me your agenda. Show me where you are at work and how I can join in. Help me to see the very heart and life and work of Jesus. The truth, the beauty, the grace, the love, the cross, the resurrection, the inbreaking kingdom, the future kingdom that is yet to be. God, don't let me wander around in confusion and miss the plot line. 
Because what happens when, when we come at life with the wrong heart posture is that we demand the wrong things from God. And as you read through the gospel accounts, the most striking thing, in my opinion, is that the people who accept and follow Jesus the most readily are the irreligious and the unimportant. Because they have zero expectations and a lot of humility. And they come and they follow him. Who has the hardest time following him? It's the people who are full of pride and self-righteousness. Which in Jesus' day was the, the religious elite. And so we too can approach God like the Pharisees and say, Give me a sign. Show me that you're real. Show up in the time and place and way that I desire. Prove yourself. And too often, we're just expecting God to show up in the wrong places. Sometimes our agendas and our desires and our expectations actually blur our vision and make it harder for us to see what God is doing right in front of our eyes. In essence, we form our agendas and our desires and our dreams, and then we say, God, would you bless it? This is what I want. Would you prove yourself by giving these things to me? Or sometimes we just say, if you really are God, then you fill in the blank. The promotion, the spouse, personal success, heal that disease, fix this broken relationship, bless my plans, remove all of my suffering, perform this sign right now, and maybe you can have my heart and allegiance in response. Maybe. Which in a sense is just what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus. Saying, if you really are from God, then jump through the hoops that we've designed and then maybe we'll believe. You prove your divinity to us on our terms. And Jesus, in no uncertain terms, says no. No. I don't have to. In fact, I've gotten my mission and my plans, and my miracles, and my agenda, and my inbreaking kingdom. And it's actually up to you to figure out if you want to join me. That's how this relationship works. The Jews wanted a specific type of miracle done on demand at their asking to prove that this was the Messiah who would free them from Roman oppression. And yet, when Jesus actually comes, he, he doesn't fit their mold. He, he doesn't jump through their hoops. He doesn't give them what they want. What he gives them is something better. Not just the means to political freedom through subversive and nonviolent methods, but the means to true human freedom from sin, alienation, the demonic, and death itself through the radical forgiveness of God and the new life that follows. This, Jesus says, is what it truly means to be free. 
Rome was their immediate felt need. But Jesus did something bigger. These specific Old Testament miracles were, were their immediate desire. But Jesus denies them that and gives them something better. Cross, resurrection, the sign of Jonah. And way too often, I think, we find ourselves in the same shoes, making the same mistakes inside and outside of the church. We approach God with a sense of skepticism. We say, God, if you're real, if you're really God, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, and then we fill in the blank with the thing that we most desire, that would meet our specific expectations. Might I suggest, God, manna from heaven? And so just like the Pharisees, we have all of this evidence of God all around us. God is constantly on the move. He, he's constantly answering prayers. He's constantly advancing his kingdom. He, his loving presence is constant. He's constantly forgiving and redeeming and, and giving us hope of eternal life. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. There's this whole new way of life that's available right here and right now in the present. But if we're caught up looking for the wrong signs, then we'll actually be blind to it. And we will sit right in the middle of a vast field of evidence in the very presence of the living God. And we'll say, huh, I guess God's not real. I guess he doesn't exist. I guess he's not who I thought he was. But instead of being blinded by our own expectations, we choose as a community to be alert to God by choosing a heart posture of humility that approaches God without personal agenda and says, God, what are you up to? God, what does it look like to, to put your kingdom first and trust that all of that other stuff is going to fall into place? God, what does it look like to make your personal and empowering presence the central element of my daily living, allowing everything else to flow out of that communion and relationship. God, what does it look like to approach you with open arms and embrace you for who and what you say you're up to on your terms and not mine? In short, we say, God, open my eyes to who you are and what you're up to. What, what are you up to on my campus? What are you up to in the lives of my roommates? God, what are you doing in the life of my spouse? God, what, what do you want to say to my kids today? God, what are you up to in the life of our church? What are you doing in the city of Spokane? What, what are you up to in the nations? And, and how are you calling me to join in with what you're doing and your agenda and your plans and your kingdom? And when you come to God with that heart posture, not only will God be more responsive to your prayers, but he's going to become more tangible 
in your life. You're going to see and experience all of the signs you ever needed. And then some. But it comes by way of faith and humility. And so as we close this morning, there's just a few questions that I want us to ponder. As we sort through this text and and the Pharisees and signs and proof, and I'm kind of left asking a few questions. For me personally, this is where I landed. I hope this will be helpful. These were the questions that I was asking. God, where have I demanded specific signs from you as a prerequisite to faith? Where have my misguided expectations blinded me to who you are? And then ultimately, as God reveals that stuff to us, the driving question is, God, what are you up to now? What's next? After I capture and identify all of my mistaken assumptions, all of the ways that I set myself up in self-righteousness and put God on trial and force him to prove himself, instead of following after him and and knowing him along the way. As he reveals these things that stand in our way, because we all have them, we all have these things that blind us to who God really is and what he's really up to. We only want to identify those things so that we can clear the ground, so that we can open it up and say, all right, God, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready for what's next. I'm ready to see you for exactly who and what you are. So before we head to the communion tables this morning, we're just going to take a few minutes and listen. So I'll go ahead and invite the band to come back up. And we're just going to take a few minutes and just sit in these questions. And I'll just ask that God would speak. Sometimes that's really subtle, and sometimes that's really loud and obvious but we want God to speak into these areas of our life. So I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we'll take some time to listen, um, and then I'll be back up in a few minutes to kind of open the tables, and, and we'll go from there. But first, let's pray. Jesus, we believe that the most obvious sign we ever received from you was what happened on the cross and what happened three days later when the tomb was empty. It is still the sign of Jonah which is impacting our world in a deeper way than we can understand. And if we believe that sign and we believe that the tomb is empty, then in the simplest language we know how to use, all we can say is that you're not dead. That, that you're alive. If the sign of Jonah is, too, is true, if, if the tomb is empty, it means that you are a living reality, one that is even present with us in this room. And so Jesus, as we come to you, uh, the true king, the true prophet, we take what we have, our own sort of discordant lives, our own brokenness, and we just place it in your hands. We, we bring it under your power. We bring it under your kingship because that's where new life is found. So over these next few minutes, God, as, as simply as you can, as we're um, journaling or listening or taking notes, would you just impress upon us not just the ways that we've blinded ourselves to you, 
But would you start whispering to us about where you're really going to be found? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.